We've been gathering together and and searching the scriptures to help us define our own get God's definition on why do we why do we do this? Uh, why do we gather together, take one full day out of the week, and then take the morning of it and uh, to to read God's word, spend time with each other? What is the purpose of that? And uh, today we're going to to study uh, very surface, um, we're going to skim the surface of what God has to say about why we give together. So giving, <clears throat> I can always already probably guess what you're thinking in your minds, um, because we all come with a preconceived idea, especially when we start talking giving of what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, through this process of studying, my mind changed on some things. Um, things became clear, and uh, but even uh, even still yet, there's a ton more that can be dug into in the depth of of God's word in this regards. But before we begin, I do want to clarify one thing. Today, I will not be speaking about tithing. And the reason is, I searched the scriptures. <clears throat> I came to to believe that tithing for a born-again believer is sin. Now, the air just left some of the room here, I think. So why would I say that? Um, let's, let's dig. So the word tithe in the Scripture, um, in the Old Testament, is not, it's not a, tithe is not a churchy word. Okay, it doesn't have its own definition. There's a definition in the Scripture for the word tithe. Tithe means a tenth. Ten percent. And it had a specific purpose in the scripture and use. Um, it's not voluntary giving. Um, it's not voluntary offerings. And voluntary giving and offerings have been practiced all the way from Genesis to Revelation. But we don't see that with tithing, okay? So I'm just going to contrast for a short part before we start going <clears throat> the direction of, of what I did find. So number word, the word tithe means tenth. The tithe was instituted and practiced under the Old Testament Levitical law and began soon after the nation of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy is ruled by God. They were a country, a nation, a group of people whose, whose king was God himself. And that's when this was implemented, the tithe. And it was a non-voluntary tax, you could call it, for the support of the nation, for the support of the tabernacle, and for the support of the priests. Because again, we're a th- Israel was a theocracy. And there was more than one tithe, and then totally, when you put all the tithes together spoken about in the Old Testament, there's about 25% or more based on your household situation. If you wanted to pay cash, there was an extra percent or so put on that to translate your tithe into a cash donation. Um, so that's a little bit of background on, on tithing. Uh, there were two rare occasions in the scripture that tithing was demonstrated outside the Levitical law. And prior to that giving, um, it was Abraham who paid tithes to Melchizedek from the spoils of going into Sodom and, and taking Sodom, possession of Sodom. Uh, and that's found in Genesis 14, if you want to look, not that now, but <clears throat> in the future. Genesis 14 is that story. 
And then the second one was Jacob, who promised to tithe God. Let me back up. So you remember the story of Jacob. God promised Jacob he was going to bless him. And the blessing was just overwhelming. <clears throat> that was in a dream. When Jacob woke up, he wasn't exactly sure what just happened. And so he began to make uh, talk to God. And as he, as he talked to God, um, actually he took the rock he was sleeping on, remember that dream, and he made an altar, and he built an altar there. And he said, God, if you actually do all these things, and he started naming every single thing that, that God promised he would do, and he said, if, if you do those things, I'm going to give you 10%. So that was the second. That was a, a, a negotiating. God's promise and covenant with, with him was not contingent on him giving 10%. That was something that he initiated because he didn't really believe, wasn't sure if God, and he said, if you did this, then you will be my God. So you can look that passage up. That's in uh, Genesis 28. So tithing was never implemented or demonstrated in a positive way in the New Testament. It was never taught by Jesus or taught by the apostles or even the New Testament church. If you or I feel guilty for not tithing, it's because we're wanting to gain God's approval or listening ear. Then if we're doing that, then that is sin. And that's why I say that tithing for a, a, a believer um, is sin. Um, it goes a lot deeper than that. <clears throat> now, we can also say um, if you're trying to earn the acceptance through your works, it's not just in tithing, it's in other things as well. The Romans in Galatians 5 speaks about the fact that we do not earn our salvation. If you or I feel, uh, if you or I feel guilty for not submitting all of our being, now this is in contrast, if we're guilty for not submitting all of our being to Christ, and all of our possessions to Christ, if we disobey Christ's command to give and to be generous to others, then that is sin, and is, we are guilty in disobeying the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to differentiate that what tithing is, and oftentimes in church here and growing up, um, you know, I was taught to tithe, give 10%. Through this, I've discovered <clears throat> that I have... Uh, First of all, it's hard to get to that point where you were. Cons I was consistent in giving 10%. doesn't matter if it's 10% of 15,000, or maybe you are looking at 10% 10, 10 of 150,000. It can be just as painful when you have nothing. It can be more painful when you have nothing, actually. Um, <clears throat> but the fact is, I had the attitude that once I got to that 10% level, I was relieved. I did my duty. Whew. One more time frame was behind me. I don't get paid once a month, so, you know, I get a check, 10% would go, and I could, I could breathe a sigh of relief. That is sin. Um, because when we look at God's Word, <clears throat> we're going to learn that when we give, we're not giving to the church. Where I write my 10%, I'm done. I made it. I can go one more month. Um, we're taught to give through the church as needs arise. And uh, so, in contrast, as we study the entirety of God's Word, we're going to find that God communicates a deeper and much broader command. And would we be surprised by that? Um, if you remember Matthew 5, when, God, when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, what did he talk about? He said, you've heard him say, you shall not kill, 
Where did Jesus take him? He said, if you're angry with your brother, guilty. He said, you heard him say that you should not commit adultery. I say, if you lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. He said, you make oaths only to God. Well, let me tell you, you need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that is sin. So Jesus always stepped beyond the outward obedience and examined the hard issues. And why would that be? The reason is, is that we are sinful man, we're separated from God, and we're separated on that hard issue. So as as born-again believers, we are a new creation in Christ. We no longer live with sin and control, as Romans 6 teaches us, but our sinful flesh and its desires have not changed. So when I become a born-again believer, the Spirit of God makes a new creation in Christ within me. But my flesh, has my flesh been saved from sin? Does it still desire the sinful desires it did five minutes before I became saved? Yes, it does, and it will until you die. It's going to want, you know, it's going to want to be a glutton. It's going to want to, whatever it desires. You have to put it in subjection to the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm talking to Christians here. So the sinful flesh and desires have not changed and will remain until we shed it off at death. Therefore, we must yield ourselves to Christ. And now, as born-again believers, the Holy Spirit is the motivation of the believer to joyfully submit to God's Word. And it is with this context that we're speaking today. So, believer, talking to you and me, as the apostles and church and fathers recognize, giving takes on a perspective and excitement. We read in 2 Corinthians, that he says, This I say, he which soweth sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. And he that sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound to every good work. For as it is written, and he's going to reference Psalm 112 here, He that dispersed abroad as he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. Psalm 112 speaks of the man who's spirit-filled, in so many words, okay? So you can reference back to Psalm 112 to see more, because when Paul referenced, you know, quoted a little verse, just a little uh, brief verse where he's quoting some scripture, a lot of times in the, um, the way the Jews spoke, when they referenced that, then all of a sudden, because they put those, those chapters in their mind, all of a sudden, to that Jew that's listening to Paul speak, Psalm 112 comes to mind, the whole context. So he's not just referencing verse 9 here. He wants you to read all of Psalm 112, all right? So if we don't understand giving on the individual level, you know, me, between me and God, we're not going to understand why we give and when we come together as a body. So question two, have you ever heard a preacher say, God loves you and does not want your money. He wants all your heart. I've heard that, I've heard that many times. Now, the fact is, do you know that to be true? And how do you know that to be true? Or is this just a catchy phrase that takes the pressure off the preacher talking about money and he can get on with what he's trying to, to tell you? Um, so let's see what God has to say. In 2 Peter 2, he said, I, You need to rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy. That thinking again, the, the tithing and the Pharisees, hypocrisy, a lot of that always seemed to show up in Jesus' day. Envy, slander. Instead, like newborn babes, crave the pure spiritual milks so that they may grow by it in your salvation. Know that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also, you and me, 
like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That means no one separates us from God in communication. We all equally communicate with God. No one stands between us. No preacher stands between us. For a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay in Zion a stone. Again, he's referencing an Old Testament passage. See, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. To you who believe, this, then this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, which is Jesus, has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling block, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and to this they were appointed. But you are a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you. He's talking to the church here, remember, okay? Beloved, I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, abstain from the desires of the flesh as war against your soul, and conduct yourself with such honor among the Gentiles that through they, though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So, <clears throat> that passage here, yes, I know we're talking about giving, but we're wanting to see how this fits together of my relationship with Christ. We've discussed why we gather, but why do we gather and, and give? And what are we giving? Verse 5, uh, it says there, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are those spiritual sacrifices? To our steps, the living stones are you and me. We're being put together, collectively together. <clears throat> These spiritual sacrifices, is it your money, your tithe and offerings? It's not. Not at all. If we look through the, uh, and there's a lot of verses on this, but I just picked out four here. Um, Psalm 51, 17. What are the sacrifices? It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. Psalm 34. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save such as be of a contrite spirit. Isaiah 61 says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? How are you going to impress me? Or where will my place be that I'm going to dwell? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I'm going to esteem. So you want to get my attention? He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers, on account of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So these spiritual sacrifices the Scripture talks about as giving collectively are humble, broken, and submitted hearts and lives to God, both individually and within the context of the church. So does that mean I don't have to give any money then? Is that right? <clears throat> well, God doesn't want your money. We've established that at this point. So now let's look at verse 9. Of that passage, verse 9, says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of Him who called you out of darkness and into 
his marvelous light. So you and I and the church were designed to proclaim the virtues of him. How? By our verbal communication? We just tell everybody? No. That is one role of it, but that's my mouth. We're about the rest of this body that's supposed to be a, a living sacrifice to him. <clears throat> our actions toward others in the home, in the church, in the community, and in the marketplace. First Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh, which war against your soul. Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds glorify God on the day that he visits us. Matthew 5 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 9.13 says, By their approval of this service, which is ministry to the other saints, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Let's not whiz past that verse there. There's a lot that Joseph just said. They glorify God because of their submission. Submission to who? Who does the church, who do I submit to? Nah, see, I don't, what? Jesus, that's right. We use the word submit often in the church, and what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe you won't say it. First thing that comes to my mind, normally, is the passage about husbands and wives, and wives submit to your husbands. <clears throat> you know, and as a husband, you know, maybe that's easy to, to blurt out and have that connection in my mind. Submit means actually me. I'm to submit. My focus is not to be on what my wife does. According to this, we're to be submitting submitting ourselves to God, and that's all of me, not just what comes out of my mouth, but what's here in my heart, and how do I exercise that out of my body. So they recognize a submission that these folks had that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, and then the generosity of your contribution for them, for all others. So these, this, this body was contributing to other people. So in summary, we can say that I have been saved from sin to worship God with a new spirit-filled heart and submitted heart to God that is exercised against this flesh that I live in that has not been removed from sin. It's still under the law of sin. And I do this in privacy. I do this in the church, in the family, in the marketplace to bring Him glory from all that observe me. From all, both the born again and those that are dead and they're still in their sin and trespasses. Sacrificial giving is an exercise of this submission to Christ. Now I'm talking about sacrificial giving. When I'm financially giving something that's a, that causes me to have to cut something out, is an exercise of this submission to Christ. An example to the world and the principalities that observe me, those that we cannot see, that I do not serve this flesh or its desires, and I am proclaiming Christ as the Lord and the master of my life. Now, you think it's hard to, to write that check? It is for me. If I sit and think about it, uh, that's why I try not to think about it. You just do it. You know. And I'm talking about me, okay? <clears throat> if I have to go, to go sell something because of the missionary is needing to go out in the field, and God promised me, Caleb, go sell that. Oh, do I really have to? No, I don't want to sell that. 
I worked hard for that. We're going to see later, that's what they did. The believers in the church, that's what they did. If I don't, well, let's keep on. So number three, how is the church relevant to my giving? So in this Together series, it's been talking about the intimate parts of our relationship with Christ. When we gather, what do we do? He's the focus. How do we relate to him? This actual relationship that we're talking about has an earthly picture called marriage, according to Ephesians 5. When we gather, we, the Holy Spirit-filled church, as we already read, are living stones, are put together, and we're spending intimate time together with Jesus as the groom, okay, as he's in the midst here with us. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but he delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? His image, what, what is his image? I listed a few. This is not in the scripture, but I listed in parentheses here. The love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Those are the what? Fruits of the Spirit. And the Spirit is part of the triune God, right? The Holy Spirit that dwells us. <clears throat> so these are the fruits that are coming from Him that should be blossoming out of the, the believer. These things... <clears throat> Even though, let's see, his image, those items we just listed, even through hard times, as referenced in verse, uh, let's see, actually I don't think I had all 32 through 39 there. Let's look that up here. So Romans chapter 8, 32, 32 through 39. Let's read that. i will be through the end of the chapter. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy name's sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or powers, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So the bottom line is we cannot, through all those things, which, how many of those I just read have we ever experienced? In that list of persecutions, how many of us have ever experienced much of that? No, we haven't. We might, in our own definition of persecution, may have experienced, you know, the co-worker chuckling, or maybe even an employer that fires you. But your life, we've not experienced that. May get to, and are you willing to? But nothing will separate you from the love of God. First John four nineteen, you see here that we love Him, our groom. We love our groom because He first loved us. 
So in this little sketch I did that's pretty poor, um, you see the bride to the left of the paper, the groom to the right of the paper. <clears throat> and this is a picture of the bride, the church, and Jesus as the scripture lays it out. In Ephesians, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So as the, the groom shows love to the bride, what does she do with her ears? Only the groom says what with three words? Okay? And she hears him say, I love you. Okay? So she's listening. <clears throat> How does God communicate to us? Through his written word. If I don't spend time in his written word, am I hearing my groom? No. But let's say I do. So I read God's word. And more than just once a day or once a week. <clears throat> so I hear it. So then I have a choice to, as a bride, what does she normally say back? I love you back, right? Without the back on the end. I love you. <clears throat> and so they commune back and forth. What is prayer and worship? Is communing with God, right? Jason just touched on what is what is actually giving. It's demonstration of my love, right? <clears throat> but keep in mind that the this bride, the church... Who's indwelling her? Right now. Who's indwelling us, the bride? is the Holy Spirit, right? And so these fruits of the Spirit that he's talking about over here, and even the love itself, is originating from the Holy Spirit that's indwelling this believer as he, as he or she corresponds back to Christ, the groom. So as the church gathers, these living stones all get together, Holy Spirit's all in all of these, and collectively, they're worshiping the groom. Now, what if... How much, how many of you guys have ever been to a wedding? Okay, keep your hands up. Have anyone been to a wedding where they're going to present the rings and the groom or the bride, or let's say the bride, because the groom presents his first, then the bride gets her chance, and she said, this one's kind of expensive. Um, let me find another one here for you. Anyone ever been to a wedding like that? No. What does a bride and a, a groom do after they're, they're married and hopefully for the rest of their lives together, they wholly, 100%, give each other to each other, right? <clears throat> How many of you guys or gals would be happy with uh, your spouse giving you 1% of fill in the blank or 10%? Matter of fact, let's even take the 99%. How much you all would be satisfied? 99% of your wife's love. Nobody? Wives, how many of you would be happy with 75% of your, your husband's love? Or 99.9% .9 of your husband's love? But just that little bit, eh, you don't get that. Would that be all right? Why is it any different? What are you basically saying when you're withholding? I mean, we laugh, but uh, you and I both know this goes on. <laughs> it's easy to laugh. 
<clears throat> Laugh covers a multitude of... No, that's not how that verse goes. Um, <laughs> but if I say I love you, but I don't trust you with fill in the blank. So if you're withholding it, there's a reason why it's being withheld. And normally, it can be a trust issue. Honestly, there's many, maybe times in one's marriage that this may be the truth. There may be reasons for this distrust. There may have been actions taken or things that have not been resolved. Christian husbands, Christian wives, it's not acceptable to stay in this condition. We can't laugh about this and then go home and just brush it under the rug. God's Word does not allow for that. Because God looks at the heart. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. And He loves us enough not to leave us in this condition. We must address these issues biblically and quickly so Satan does not destroy both us individuals and you as a couple and as a family. Remember John 10.10. Satan, who is our adversary, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he'll use any little thing to begin the, the destruction. But Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly. If I, as a Christian, refuse to resolve these issues in my marriage, I'm refusing to listen and submit and obey to my husband, Jesus Christ. Okay? And he has withheld nothing from me. So if God gives us direction through his word, and I refuse to submit to it and obey to it, I'm in disobedience. And he's not going to leave me that way. And that might hurt. Philippians 2.2 says, Christians have the same love for Christ. You both be in one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, which is pride, but in lowliness of mind. Remember that humility we spoke of earlier that God likes? Let each esteem each other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things or desires, but every man also on the things of others. Each other here. He's talking to the church here. Let this mind be in you and me, which was also in Christ Jesus. He who being the form of God, thought it not robbery. He wasn't taking from God to be equal to God. He was God. But made himself, instead of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, the ones he created. And then being found in fashion as a man, he then even humbled himself further and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He demonstrated love, and he gave all to me. I must humble myself toward my spouse and to other Christians just as Jesus commanded it, and ultimately to him as well. <clears throat> so now let's ask ourselves another personal question. What are you, what am I withholding from him? You know what it is. It's already popped in your mind in this discussion here. Do I trust him with fill in the blank? If you don't trust him with this item, do not leave here today without surrender and addressing this with him. As his child, he will not be willing to leave you in this unsurrendered state. In Hebrews 12, he said, My son, don't despise, don't hate, don't kick at the chasing of the Lord. Don't faint when you are rebuked by me. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges in every one and every son whom he receives. How many kids love to be disciplined? Oh, you put your hand up. Man, you're strange. I don't. You love to be disciplined. I don't like to be disciplined. I hated it. 
and as adults, even as kids, a loving parent demonstrates love by lovingly disciplining their kids. And God does the same thing. And we're not talking about your money right now. We're talking about everything that of, of who you are. <clears throat> if you know what the scripture says, if you know what is right to do and you refuse to do it, that's sin. And God will not leave us in that state. So <clears throat> let's go to, we won't turn to Malachi, but in the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Bible. When God spoke to Malachi about bringing all the tithes into the storehouse and blessing those who obey, God was not really concerned about their outward actions of giving. The lack of giving and tithing was rather an outward gauge that exposed their heart. So see, he, he was calling out to the, the Israelites here. This is at the end of the Old Testament, by the way. And the consequence of the disease, the pestilence, the financial ruin that they were experiencing, all the other nations were, were thriving was not because of the refusal to tithe and give, but rather the rejection of their relationship with God. They refused to submit to Him. And if you read the context of that entire passage in Malachi, and the entire book for that case, He was chastening the Israelites. He was rehearsing all the ways that He had demonstrated love to them over and over and over again. And you see another passage in the Old Testament to the Israelites, how He provided for them in the past, how He took them out of Egypt, And he was calling them to repentance. They had turned their hearts from God. And the book of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant at that point, was closed until Jesus showed up on the planet in human flesh. He would not give up on them. So question four, I want to give, I want to give in obedience to Christ. How much then should I give? Is there a minimum or a maximum percent on how much I should give to, to Christ's control? Well, as we already discussed, well, how much do you trust him? A few examples here. Luke twelve thirty three. <clears throat> the summary of, of the beginning context here. Jesus was telling them to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He told them that secret actions and thoughts were eventually would be revealed. He said, don't be afraid of those that kill the body, for God knows the life of the sparrows, and he watches over you. He knows how many hairs or lack of are on your head. And God's care during trials. He doesn't leave you. He said, don't be covetous of other riches and spend your time earning, all your time earning riches. Then 33 says, sell what you have and give gifts to the needy. Make for yourselves purses which don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, neither moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there is your heart. Later on in the same passage uh, in Matthew 6, he said, No one can serve two masters. For either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoured to one and you're going to despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, how much do I give to his control? In Luke 21, He looked up and he saw the rich people who were putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a certain poor widow casting in two small brass coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow put in more than all the others. For all these put in gifts for God from their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, she put all that she had to live on. 
How much do I give to his control? 1 Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment. What's contentment? That word's not used very much anymore, it doesn't seem. You don't see it in any advertising for some reason. Um, <clears throat> but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, for you and I, we didn't bring anything into this world. And it is certain we will carry nothing out of this world. So having food and raiment, let us be content with those things. But those that are rich, which is all of us in this room, there's not anyone in here that is not rich. If you look at, and I don't have statistics, but if you look across the world stage, every one of us are very rich. As Jesus defines it, we're in that category. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which draw men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after they had erred from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto you are also called and had professed a good profession before many witnesses. You said this earlier. Is it fleshing out? That's my word. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded and prideful, nor trust in uncertain riches, money, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to, dis- to distribute, give, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may, they may hold on eternal life. So again, how much do I give to his control? In that warning there that we just read about, <clears throat> as I was on the way here this morning, had the radio on, and a passage... Um, came on so I want to point this out that warning there was to you and me and that's a serious warning because we are we do fall in that rich category we go back to uh, John chapter 12 remember this scenario six days before the Passover came to Bethany Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was which had been dead whom he raised from the dead back in the day. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of ointment, a spikenard, and very costly anointed it to the feet of Jesus. And I didn't look up how much that is, but from what I remember on the radio, that's, that's a lot of money. That was like maybe a whole year's wages. Um, and she put it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, this must be a wise thing getting ready to be said, I can only imagine. <clears throat> well, this was Judas. Well, imagine, what did he have to say? Which we know he was what he was going to do. Um, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, because he was a thief and had the bag and bearer what was was going to be put in it. I'm going to stop right there. 
So when you are about to break open the ointment and give as God directs you to give, who seeks to, to draw away? Who seeks to <clears throat> get you off, off course there? Who says that is a waste of your time to be spending doing that? Well, that is a waste of your money. You know what? You're not going to have any money for retirement. You might even say that word, Caleb. Matter of fact, take it out of your dictionary, which I have because that's not possible probably. But, uh, <clears throat> and who, who's the author of fear? Satan is, according to God's word. So when God prompts you to give a whole year's wages, and you would say, huh, that is stupid, Caleb. No one's going to do that in 2019. Why not? What does that create? What, what did God call Abraham to do? Sacrifice his son that hadn't been born yet? No, his son that was alive and living with him. That didn't make any sense. Did God make a way? Yes, God made a way. Does God ask us to do really crazy things sometimes? The God of the Bible does. If your God does not ask you to do crazy things that you think that makes no sense, which it has to line up with what Scripture says. I'm not saying disobedient things. I'm saying crazy things that don't make sense, that do line up with Scripture. That's the God of the Bible. If your God is satisfied with 10% every week, or fill in the blank, or I can love my wife, but I can also do this over here, or, you know, there's a lot of blanks you can fill in. That's not the God of the Bible. Actually, that's a God of your own creation, which is called a what? It's an idol. So, question five. Have I given God control over all, 100% of my finances? Now, my checkbook register, or the receipts that I keep, actually expose my heart and make a declaration to my flesh of who is in control. So if you really want to know who's in control, all you got to do is go look at your records. That's all I got to do, go look at my records. On that aspect, the other parts I can probably ask my wife, ask my kids, ask the people I work with. They can probably tell me the truth, who I really am. But you see, when we gather together, I can pretend to listen to God's Word, I can pretend to obey, I can pretend to pray, and I can pretend to worship. I can even pretend to give in obedience. And I may fool others, but God knows my heart. The issue of giving God 100% control of all things will always expose my heart. Matthew 19, here are two examples. You remember this guy? Good master, what good things shall I do? Can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, huh, why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that's God. But if you will enter life, why don't you keep his commandments? You think Jesus, Jesus already knew the heart of this guy, right, when he showed up? <clears throat> Jesus is kind of, he's kind of a funny guy. He likes to play games with people. <clears throat> he said, well, why don't you keep the commandments? He said to him, oh, which ones, Jesus, should I keep? Jesus says, well, how about thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal. How about don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Honor your mom and dad. And love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All those things I've kept from my youth, Jesus. Oh, is there anything else I lack? Jesus answered him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you got and give it all to the poor. 
You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. All of a sudden, when the young man heard this saying, he went away sad, for he was one who had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Now remember, according to the scriptures, we're rich. Most certainly I say to you, a rich man will enter into the kingdom of heaven with difficulty. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were exceedingly astonished, saying, Well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now, that's not a God, all things are possible, that's over here. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. That is what makes it possible. Because it's springing up from within you, and he's not going to let you rest until you submit to full control of all things in my life and in your life. So it's obvious the rich young ruler, well, let me finish. So verse, <clears throat> you said to them, most certainly I tell you that who have followed me in this regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory, you will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and left their brothers and sisters and fathers or mothers or wife or kids or lands for my name's sake. Now, you guys are investors, listen to this. We'll receive 100 times and will inherit eternal life. But many will be last, but many will be last who are first, and the first are last. You want to get a hundred times your investment? Or Jesus, that's just a, he didn't really mean that. He meant that. So just some real simple math. Whatever you got in your bank account, take it times a hundred. Whatever your house is worth, the equity in your house, take it times, take it times a hundred. Jesus used money to do what? To expose the heart. In the New Testament, in Acts, in the church, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and breaking of bread and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done in the, by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking of bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That means the unity. They praised God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. Now, what I just read, does that not bring to mind the passages we read earlier about the non-believers and non-believers started to recognize who was the actual Christians here. God was getting glory by the actions that they had, the unity that they had, and how they were operating their flesh lives that they lived in, and how they showed love one to another. Everything was going great. And we move on to Acts chapter 4. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. So they didn't, they didn't hold their possessions so tightly. But they had all things common. And with a great power had the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, he was a Levite in the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, they also sold a possession and kept back part of the price. 
his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Oh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own land? We didn't require you to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not your own power to do with the money as you pleased? Why have you conceived this in your own heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was the space of three hours later, when his wife, not knowing what was done, she came in, and Peter answered unto her, So tell me, how much you sold the land for? And she said, It was for such and such amount, which basically they were they were lying. They said they sold it for this amount. Really, they sold it for this amount, and they kept this amount back home. And they're saying they were bringing all the money and giving it. And Peter said to her, How is it you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door, and will carry you out also. Then she fell down, straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in, found her dead, and carried her forth, and buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon all as many as heard these things. So what was the issue between Barnabas, contrasting Barnabas and Ananias? It wasn't the fact that they sold the land and brought the money in. When Peter called them out, it was because they had what? Lied. They lied. And because of pride. Why did they lie? It was because of pride. God directed Barnabas to sell 100% of his land and bring the finances in. in, And Barnabas obeyed in sincerity and operated in the spirit. Peter didn't accuse Ananias of sin for not giving all the money. Instead, he accused him of lying. Ananias and Sapphira were operating the flesh and disregarded God's authority in their lives. They were wanting the gain of both money and man's approval, thus disregarding God's approval. Again, this is an example where God used money to expose the heart of people. So when we have a biblical view of God, we'll have a a biblical view of a born-again believer of who I am, we will now have a biblical view of money. It is only a tool to bring glory to our bridegroom, Jesus, through worship, stewardship, obedience. Remember, God wants your heart married in oneness with Him. So why should we give together when we come together to church? <clears throat> we talked about giving. Let me ask you, what happens in the Old Testament, do you remember when they'd take their, their offering or their sacrifice to the temple? Or dad would just make a, a um, altar, thank you, and put the sacrifice on it. What would the family do? What would the, some of the young kids do? Well, if you did that, what would your kids do? Dad, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? Right? People ask questions. Therefore, an opportunity to share with others what God has done for us arises. And that's why we, when we come together, we want to give together. Um, it's not for pride. Uh, the scripture I was talking about, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And to do it in secret. But also, when your family comes together, how is your, your kids going to know how God has been faithful to you if you don't communicate what's going on? Why you're giving what you're giving. 
So as we've already discussed, the Bible, or the body, the church, is made up of many living stones and operates in obedience to Christ, both individually and collectively in one unit. When needs are made known to the elders, the deacons, or the body, the body can meet those needs specifically. When that is accomplished, there are some of the positive, <clears throat> what are some of the positive results through God's design? And I didn't ask anyone if they want to give a testimony, but just something you can think about right now. What happens when, you, when someone demonstrates care for you or your family? What, how do you respond? What do you feel towards that person? What do you feel towards those that you have helped? How do your kids respond? How do others in the community respond that observe this action or at work or if you're in the hospital and it takes place? What is your response as to, to our Father as the giver or as the receiver? How does the church benefit collectively? What, does that, what happens when uh, generosity is poured from one believer to another or through the church to another? Okay? So, now, for your information, and I think something that we may want to discuss in the future, um, here's some just real hard facts. Question seven, how did the early church stewardship the money that flowed through them? Because remember, when we give to church, we're not giving to the church, we're giving through the church. Here are the ways that you see in the New Testament where the church, how they gave their money. Okay? What I would challenge us to do, body, is to take these, Put them into some categories. And then maybe we should talk about, does our budget reflect the priorities of the early church as shown in the scripture? That's one thing I think as a body of family we need to do. So I want you to notice when the New Testament church gave their resources, the members gave their gifts through the church to minister and encourage others. Members never just gave to the church as the end of their responsibility. And this must remain the same for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, blessed, <clears throat> blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us, you and me, with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praises and glory of this grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Which we're getting ready to go celebrate, as others have been accepted into the Beloved. So when we leave here today, I hope you don't hear me saying, um, giving a sin. That's not what I said, okay? God wants all, 100% of you and me, and will not be satisfied with anything less than that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you demonstrated all of this. You didn't withhold anything from us. You covered us 100% of your blood over me. And then nothing less would be acceptable in our Father's sight, in God's sight. And we thank you, Lord, as, as our high priest, as our mediator between me and you, you do cover us 100%. We thank you that you are, are holy and we can rest in you. And Lord, although that uh, my flesh is weak and wants its own way, Lord, that uh, you give us the power to obey. Help us to be men and women, Lord, that have a, a hunger and thirst for you, spend time with you, 
And Lord, uh, thank you for grafting us into your family. Help us to encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.